I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast. Produced in association with Advantage Go. Enabling an enterprise view of exposure. It's a long time since legacy was a dusty dead end of the insurance industry, where old underwriters went to eke out the remains of their days before retirement. And at the same time, it's been a long time since the era when fronting was seen as a bit of a dirty secret of the industry. These days, both segments have matured and taken up their rightful place in the insurance ecosystem. But it's rare to meet someone so well qualified and quite so dynamic driving a business that is in both of these spaces. William Spiegel, the executive chairman of RQ, is someone with an impeccable resume as an investor in some blue chip startups in our sector over the past two decades. And because of that, he brings a fresh and very insightful perspective to our industry. I was really interested to find out why someone like him has decided to come and work on the inside of a mature business at this time. The answers are all here in the podcast, as William describes two fascinating and uncorrelated high-growth, profitable business opportunities in our sector. William is full of energy and drive, and it runs all the way through the podcast. I never thought these segments could sound so exciting. But William tells a compelling story, and the combination of his ruthless business logic and his infectious enthusiasm is a winning one. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. William, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to Voice of Insurance. Maybe there's some listeners out there who don't know you very well. Why don't you set them straight? Tell us a bit about you and your career to date, and then tell us a little bit about R&Q as well and, and where it's going. Thank you, Mark. It's a real pleasure to be here and to discuss RQ with you and my background. So thanks for the first question. Right now, I am the executive chairman of Randall & Quilter. Randall & Quilter is an insurance company in two very niche sectors. I will come back to that. But you asked a little bit about my career. So how did I get to become executive chairman of Randall & Quilter? It probably won't surprise you to know that as a kid growing up in Canada, I was not thinking about running insurance companies. And that was the last thing in the world I was thinking about. In fact, like every good Canadian kid, I wanted to become a hockey player. And I just was lacking in a couple things, size and skill. Other than that, I would have made it to the NHL. I'm pretty confident. 
when that wasn't going to work out for me, actually, ultimately went to business school. Went to business school in the United States after actually being educated in the UK for uh, undergraduate. And I ended up in the PE world, in the private equity world. And I ended up not only in the PE world, but I picked an area, financial services, to focus in on. And in that, I really specialized more in insurance. And I picked financial services, frankly, because nobody else was interested in it. My whole philosophy of my career has been when someone zigs, I'm going to zag. And everyone was running after media and technology. And frankly, maybe they were right. But I picked insurance and financial services. It was an area that was just not interesting with rating agencies and different financial metrics, et cetera, et cetera. So I picked that. But the type of private equity that I did was growth equity, what I call business building. So really, I would say my entire career has been business building. And what that means is I was backing great management teams, either with ideas or small businesses and wanted to grow them. And I was on the inner circle. I was often the chairman of these companies. I helped build a firm called Pinebrook, where I did over 20 investments in the financial services space. In companies that you would know globally, companies like Lancashire, we started with Richard Brindle. Fidelis, we started with Richard Brindle. We invested in Catlin. We started Montpelier. We invested in a company called Global Atlantic, started a company called Clear Blue, which is in the program space. That's not a bad resume, William. Sounds like we should have known you. Well, you'd kept yourself a little bit in the shadows though, hadn't you? Yeah, maybe. I should, I should have been playing in the NHL and then we would have done it. <laughs> instead, I, instead, I'm here running an insurance company. So we really built companies. And I had a bunch of themes that I thought were really important over the last five years, which really led me to R&Q. One was the separation of capital from the rest of the ecosystem. So I view every financial services company as an originator of risk and an owner of risk. But do they need to own their own risk was really the question I kept asking myself when what you saw was the explosive growth in the PE space, explosive growth in the sovereign wealth space. And these everyone wanted access to unique products. And a financial services company, not just insurance companies, create that product. And the other theme was the use of data and technology. I have a big theme for five years or so that's Every company is a data company. What does that mean? If you're in the restaurant business, as an example, and you don't know how many Branzinos are going to be sold that night, then you are either going to have too few or throw away too many. So you need to be a data company. An insurance company needs to be a data company to understand its customers and get the best results. So these were big themes that I have had. And in building, and I invested in three legacy companies, they'll come back to what R&Q does, and one program management company around these themes. And I think that's what led me ultimately to Randall and Quilter, where I knew Ken Randall and Alan Quilter over the last decade. And I think they appreciate the things that I was thinking. So you got to know them because you're a potential investor. And then you thought, right, you can see that there was a time when the R and the Q in the business were probably going to retire. Is that how it came in? It's a good question. So actually, I met Ken and Alan in 2007 or eight when we started a legacy company in Lloyd's. And they were doing the same thing. And Pinebrook and, and Soros actually together started a legacy company. And we were looking to, should we merge? Should we consolidate? So I got to know them as a result of that, not so much investing in their business, but actually, should we merge it? And we just stayed in touch over the years. And Ken and Alan, I guess they liked the themes that I was developing. They saw I'd invested in three legacy companies. I created a program management company. And ultimately, as the founders of the business were looking for a succession, particularly Ken, Alan's still there. I think he thought I was an interesting individual, given my experience, to come and join them to build. He asked the question I didn't answer yet, what is R&Q? It's really to build the two business lines that we are focused in on, legacy and program management. And very briefly, 
legacy is a business where we are providing capital relief to insurance companies. Insurance companies have to hold capital against insurance policies they write. And they might be holding capital on policies they wrote in the 1950s or 60s. So we are a mechanism to release that capital so that they can redeploy. And we take that on our balance sheet and work it out and run it off. That's one business line. I invested in three companies that did that. On the program side of the business, very different. Program side is really a reflection of the ecosystem coming apart. Program managers own licenses, very hard to get. And they connect insurance originators to capital who want access to direct insurance premium. And we charge a fee. So I had built a business there as well. And so my skill set was pretty interesting and very in line with what Randall and Quilter had become after they'd sold off some of their old businesses and just now focusing on these two business lines. Just on detail, was that business originally called RITC Syndicate? Was that correct? Exactly, yeah. And it became Vibe when it went into more into live. And obviously that's all gone by the wayside now. That's right. And we bought Vibe, actually. So I started the runoff syndicate. It did move into going running live. And then as I joined Randall and Quilter, we last year bought the Vibe syndicate. That's one of our deals. It's really interesting, obviously, this smart capital, capital light. And so as part of that, one of your big announcements very recently has just been this 300 million sidecar of Gibson Reef. So this idea of originating risk and then passing it on to capital. Tell us all about that. Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, One of the big themes in my mind is ecosystem coming apart in all financial services. So before we even talk about Gibson, if you think about a bank or a mortgage company or a credit card company or an auto company, they actually don't own their own risk. They originate and then they securitize. Banks have the CLO market and mortgage companies have the CMBS market and the credit card companies use the ABS market, but they basically send the risk into the hands of lower cost of capital. They do that, by the way, not only because the capital is lower, but because these are big balance sheet intensive businesses. And big balance sheet intensive businesses cannot grow to the sky with their own capital. They cannot go back to the capital markets every single year and raise more money. So insurance has been a little late to this. The catastrophe part has created sidecars and ILS funds, but even then the insurance industry has been a little slow at recognizing that you should syndicate your risk. So what have we done with Gibson Re? We have pretty much just done a private securitization. And we're now in line with what the rest of the financial services world is doing, is we're sending that risk out the back door to a third party, three years, they have to take all of that risk. Now, we have skin in the game. I think it's very important. We take 20% of the risk and the investor takes 80% of the risk. But what it's done is it's freed up capital. So we can grow and take advantage of this huge legacy market that PwC says there's $860 billion of legacy liabilities. We're growing quite rapidly. Our constraint has not been access to deals. It's actually been more access to capital. And so what this does is it's really another financing vehicle. Now, it does something else for us, which it does move us into the fee business. We are being paid to manage these reserves. And we're now an asset manager or a reserve manager, whatever you want to call us. And we have removed going forward, because it's only go forward risk, we've removed an element of volatility. We don't have the underwriting risk. It's now 80% of that is in the hands of the investors. But in some ways, that's secondary. It was really getting multiple access to capital is a key to every balance sheet financial services company. And we only had equity and debt. And now we have equity and debt, and we have 
a securitization vehicle in place. So it would be right to say that you can't see R&Q evolving to a place where it has no balance sheet of its own and you're simply relying on your expertise on originating that risk and packaging it up. You're always going to keep that 20% skin in the game. I don't know what the amount will always keep. And if I were an investor, I would never want an originator of risk to hold none of it. When you think back to the credit crisis, what got the mortgage companies, or in theory, what they said created the spiral was the fact that the mortgage companies owned no risk. They originated and sent it all off. Therefore, they were irresponsible. I don't think that's appropriate. And I think in securitizations now, there's always a match of skin in the game. I don't know whether it's 20 or it's five, but I think that will evolve as we open up this business. It's still opening up a new form of securitization, which is casualty insurance. And as we develop it and as we do a good job, probably investors will want more of it, which means we'll take our share down. But that's only because investors are going to want more of it if we do a good job. And I want to emphasize, we have to do a good job. I mean, it's great to raise the money, but good news about coming from private equity, I recognize the following. If I don't give the investors the returns they expect, there's not going to be another pot of money at the end of the rainbow. We need to make sure that we're investing this money appropriately and getting the right returns for investors. At the moment, you're getting 80-20, get four times leverage on your capital. So you could get bigger, but there's never going to be more than 20 times, sort of, you know, 5%, 95. That's right. I think that's the skin in the game that the regulators around the world have asked in the mortgage market, et cetera. So I think there'll always be a vertical slice of the risk that we take. And I don't think it goes ever below 5%, but I like to eat my own cooking and I really like the returns that we're getting. I think this is a very underpenetrated market with a lot of demand for our services and very few competitors. So I would like to have more, but I have to look at my own balance sheet and say, what can I afford if I want to be able to take advantage of the market? And so I think we'll see that moving around. And over time, I think it will come down the amount of skin in the game we have to hold. That's where results-based and nothing more. I think that's right. Your other big strand of business is, is program management. Run us through this business segment, obviously, because RNQ over the years has had slightly different incarnations and different sort of flavors of that. So what's the current sort of prime offering within program management? And perhaps would you be looking to broaden that over time? Great question. So this goes back to my view about the ecosystem coming apart. And I mentioned that capital was separated from origination and underwriting and services. But that's some ways crude because there's a lot more going on in the insurance world. Somebody owns licenses, somebody owns origination. So if we take a step back, what program management is, it is connecting MGAs, originators, growing rapidly, actually, the MGA market will come back to that, with reinsurance capital. And we're charging a 5% fee for the use of our licenses. Right? That's what we own is the licenses. So licenses are hard to get. In the US, as an example, you need all states to license you. It's not just one license. You don't just you know, show up at the post office and say, I'd like a license. You have to go get it. You have to put capital in it. Then you need ratings. And then you need your counterparties, the reinsurers and the MGAs, to say that you can actually onboard the risk and manage the risk. If you'll manage it, meaning audit the risk and make sure it's correct. So what are the big secular trends going on? One, MGAs are growing rapidly. That's because they're not insurance companies. They are fee-based businesses with high margins. And if you have client base and you're sitting inside an insurance company, I'd probably tell you to leave, hang a shingle and go start a business because you have clients and it's a very fee-based business. But guess what? They don't have licenses. So how do they get access to licenses? They have to come to us. So we've got a really rapidly growing part of the market coming to the program players with the licenses. Now go back to the reinsurers. 
capital's growing. Problem with what's going on in the reinsurance market is the long-term trend is they're being disintermediated by the primary companies who are keeping more of their risk. Insurance companies are offshore. They're tax exempt in some ways, or they're paying tax in their local jurisdiction. They don't want to come onshore. So how do they get directly to the risk? They want to talk to the MGAs. They can't do that unless they have us. So what I see is a very big secular trend connecting MGAs to reinsurers, and we're sitting in the middle. I think the market in the US, it's $60 billion of annual origination. In Europe, the UK, it's harder to get facts, but let's call it 40 billion. So we have a hundred billion dollars annually of MGA premium in only 10% of it's right now in the hands of independent fronting companies. The rest is in the hands of insurance companies that what I like to say they do program management as a elective course, not as a required course. And so they will go in and out of that business. So if I were an MGA, I would want to work with an independent program company to be my program provider. And that means if we only own 10% of the market, and we can get that 20% or 30% or 40%, that's billions of dollars. 10% is $10 billion more coming to the independent funding company. So there's so much growth in that space. I'm very, very excited about where that's taking us. It's been really interesting. So just to make it really clear that we are talking about pure fronting here, or again, would you be wanting to take some of that risk or help getting involved in the evaluation of that risk and deciding maybe just put some of it on your own balance sheet? The answer is I'd rather be a fee business. I'd always rather be a fee business. But what I want isn't always relevant. What's relevant is what the market's asking us to do. So sometimes when we talk about program, we simplify it so much. It sounds like all we are is just a conduit or a transformer and we just take these fees. It's not really true. If we don't think that the MGA is a good MGA and we have a very thorough diligence process and onboarding process, it takes months and months and months, then we'll never get the reinsurance to support it. So we do have to do the work on, is the MGA good? Is their risk good? What are their loss ratios? By the way, the reinsurers, they don't just hand over their pen to us. They have their own box and they look at our diligence and they do their own diligence. So it's a tri-party arrangement. We are being asked to take risk and we're comfortable taking risk. And that's, again, probably a little bit of skin in the game, just like we talked about with legacy. So we are, we announced that now we are assuming about 5% of all the risk and we're making very good returns on that. And I'm okay with that. It does align all of our interests. I do think sometimes it's funny when you have these huge insurance companies that are reinsuring. And RQ is a nice size company, but we're not a mega company. And they're making sure that if we own 5%, that, that that's all they'll take in their reinsurance bucket when our capital bases are quite different. But it's not our goal to go and take risk, but we understand it. And we're very happy to do it because we view our underwriting as very high quality. So it is the movement. People are calling themselves hybrid carriers more. And that's because they're taking some of the risk on their books and effectively securitizing the rest. One way of thinking about what we did with Gibson Re, going back to legacy, is we just converted it to a program business. We take some risk and we send the rest out to quota share reinsurers. That's Gibson. In program, we originate the risk. We take a little bit and we see the rest of it out to quota share reinsurers. When I talk to MGAs who've come through the end of this soft market and there's been a big shakeout, and of course, you get that situation where you've got carriers, you've got a profitable book of business, you've had a carrier supporting you for years, but that carrier suddenly had a big change of politics, of strategy, and then they suddenly get dumped. Have you felt the demand for more slightly longer term capital? And is that part of something you're trying to serve here in terms of a commitment for something that's a bit longer term than just an annual 
binder, which could leave you in the lurch, which is certainly what a lot of MGAs, a lot of good MGAs have found themselves in a class that suddenly that couple of the carriers behind them have decided, oh, sorry, guys, we love you and everything, but we're just not doing cargo anymore. And suddenly they have to go rushing around to try and replace a new paper for their cargo binder. Are you trying to sort of smooth over some of that short-termism that we've seen in the capital? You have just explained why, maybe more articulate fashion than I did, why the independent program carriers are growing. Because the example you're using is some insurance company that is really an insurance company as a change of management, or they lose money in a catastrophe or some event, or they're in life insurance as well. And they look at an MGA and they say, yeah, you're not required. I've been doing this because it's an accommodation, but now I don't have the capital to support you. So the MGA has existential risk of existing, a little bit true existence if they team up with an insurance company that fronts on the side. If you come to an independent fronting company, and this is not just us, this is us and our competitors, our job is to help you grow. And so our job is to work and find you the right reinsurance group. Inevitably, on a renewal cycle, a reinsurer may not show up, but that doesn't matter to us because the book is good. We will find another reinsurer. So we, in some ways, we take away that risk that you just described because we work with reinsurance panels and we will replace a reinsurer, but their licenses and the insurance that they are writing on stays. So I think that's exactly why we're going to see our market share grow from 10% of the total market, approximately, to 20 or 30 or 40. And remember, each 10% market share growth is $10 billion of premium in an industry that doesn't have a lot of competition. I mean, there's 10 of us maybe, but given the size of the industry, there's not a lot of competitors right now. And by the way, most of them are PE-backed in both legacy and our program space. Because that's very understandable given that fee-based business is certainly um, PE sort of, well, it's been favor of the decade now. I can't say favor of the month. Absolutely. That's really good. Thanks for explaining that. Obviously, fee-based models, everyone loves them. Are there any other fee-based models that you think you should be getting into, given that you're right to describe this fragmentation between capital and risk origination around the insurance ecosystem? I think it's important to keep your business model simple. And I think it's important to articulate it and execute on it and not have constant strategy changes. So we're not looking to get into any other business lines. The only thing I would say, though, is embedded, and we talk about it a fair bit, embedded in what we do is we do have a stake in one of our MGAs, a company called Tradesman, and we own 40% of that. We actually converted an investment in a legacy company into a stake in that and an MGA, which is a long story, but that's the way it worked out. So why is this good for Tradesman? Why is it good for us? Obviously, for Tradesman, they know they have paper. We're an important partner there's so we own 40%. So they can lean into their business. They can lean in by adding on their core business existing states and knowing that we're there to support them. They don't have to go and find the paper. If they want to add another business line, we're there for them as long as they give us a heads up because we're with another player. We're not going to compete with ourselves. But I've seen it really help create stability and growth within tradesmen. And what we get out of it is quarterly, we get distributions of fees effectively or EBIT or pre-tax operating orders, whatever you want to call it. We get quarterly distributions, very profitable business. I could see us potentially making more of those kind of investments. It's not something that's core to what we want to do. It would require capital and we want to go capital light, but you are investing in one of your key program partners 
they grow. So you win in two ways. You win because their confidence in having paper will allow them to grow their program business. You take fees on that. And if you like the business and they're making profits, you'll get an additional distribution and likely you will get it at a strategic value. Why? Because we own one thing that is scarce and that is insurance licenses. So it isn't something we're leaning in and saying, this is a third business line. It will be very opportunistic. But you can see we own one. It's been successful. We put it in program when we discuss our numbers, but I could see us ultimately making additional investments. We have 68 programs. So we have access to the best of the best MGAs around the world who we can go talk to about what are their growth objectives? What are their needs for capital? And so we've got a built-in origination source for ourselves. Right. But you're not setting yourself up as being an incubator, kind of kindergarten for MGAs, but you might do it. You've done it once, but you might do it again. It's just a possible opportunistic thing. That's right. We don't tend to do many startups. Most of the MGAs that are coming our way are existing MGAs with a book of business that rolls. And I think that's important. I'm not saying we don't do insure tech in some of the startups. Every now and then we do. But insure tech, the numbers that they think they're going to grow into and how they achieve it, they may get there over a decade, but they don't tend to get there in a year or two. And we have scarce capacity. So we have tended to work with established MGAs And when I talk about potentially, opportunistically, seeing another MGA, it's going to be with a more established MGA who sees the ability to use their platform to add additional management team or business lines, or maybe they have a partner they need to buy out, or maybe they need to give equity to some of their junior partners. It's going to be that. It's not going to be, let's incubate and be a VC firm. That is not what we're going to do. Right. But because anyway, you're a PE guy, so you know how to do these things. (laughs) Yes, it comes naturally. But again, it's not core to what we do. We have two business lines. We will grow them. Opportunistically, I've seen and the market seen a success of tradesmen. So I could see us replicating that in the right circumstances. So detail actually about the licenses. Obviously, so you've got all 50 US states and is that admitted and ENS? I'm not sure actually if we have all of the ENS licenses yet, but we will shortly. You will. And then UK and an EU passport. Yeah. And that makes us very unique, by the way. We are the only program carrier that has all the licenses in the United States and in Europe, UK, we're rated A minus. And while there's not that many MGAs that work across the pond, the reinsurers certainly do. And so knowing the name accredited as one company is helpful in giving confidence. A lot of these businesses are confidence games. Can you get the reinsurer? Can you find the MGAs? Can you audit the MGAs? We have 68 programs. And I repeat that because it's such a big number about $900 million of premium right now, annualized half year, that the MGAs and the reinsurers have shown confidence in us. And so when new MGAs come our way or new reinsurers talk to us, they can see what we've accomplished. And I think that's really helpful because they see the trust that other big players have given us. When you're looking at your business plan, you know, with those two big strands and you're projecting it forward in your wildest dreams, what's your ideal balance between the two? the two strands? Would it be 50-50? Or when someone asks you, you know, what would be the perfect balance for these two complementary businesses and sort of diversificatory businesses? What would it be? I don't really have that in mind. And the reason is, is the businesses are uncorrelated with one another. So what I really focus on is the best business at the highest margins and the steadiest and stable businesses. So what we've created in program or the program market I'd love it to be considered a SaaS business. You know, I'm going to move it to software. 
Why? Because what is a SaaS business? It's just a recurring revenue business, right? We have that in our program business. An MGA is on our system. As long as they write good business, they are renewing every single year. And we have very high margins in that business. At the half year, we were at 40% margins, and we think we can get to the 70 plus percent margin range in that business. That's really extraordinary. So I love that business. And I think MGA business is growing. What will be the constraint? Well, if you had to big retentions, then you got a capital issue. The legacy side, we moved away, hopefully, from the capital needs to a more of a fee business. We get paid annually to manage reserves for a long period of time. So similar to the program business, it is more people intensive than the program business is. So the margins aren't quite as good. And we have to put 20% up right now. We still have to generate capital. So it's really looking at where are the best opportunities? What is most repeatable? What are the capital needs? That will determine what our business looks like. But it's not built in. It's really about how does the business come on and you know what is the highest quality business. Okay. We'll just see what it is in 10 years time and it'll be optimal just because that's the way it is. Yeah, exactly. Going back to legacy, at the beginning, you said about liabilities from the 50s and 60s and 70s and whatever, really dusty, really, really gray-haired liabilities there, intractable things. But what's been really interesting about legacy in the last few years over time is it's got much closer to live business. We're talking about liabilities that don't have a lot of dust or even moss gathering around them. So with books that are less and less mature, we saw it again at this market turn with nimble companies wanting to crack on, redeploy their capital, get out of some of the old loss-making stuff or things that they don't want to do anymore, changing strategy and being capital efficient, getting that capital to work in the segments of the market that they've decided that were going to be more profitable to them, and literally talking about things that are only two or three years old. How much closer do you think legacy is going to get to live, or is this about as far as we can go? I think it is a function of the business model of each legacy company. So we focus on small and mid-sized deals. That's where we want to play. Gibson doesn't change anything, doesn't change the recipe that has made RQ so successful for 30 years. We like expired risk that we can actuarially look at and look at how it's going to run off. We can understand the claims and hopefully settle the claims at less than held reserves. So it's really a function of understanding the book of business that you're being shown. What's been interesting in the last number of years is the brokers have entered the space. So that's got to tell you that they think it's a very big opportunity because the brokers are now showing us deals. And it used to be our team went out and shook the trees and created their own deals. Now the brokers are showing. That's really good because they're shaking the trees for us. The bad news is they're also bringing us a lot of deals that we're not going to touch. And we don't want expired risk. And we don't want risk that we can't actually understand. So I'm less worried about whether it's one or two years old or 60 years old. I want to understand, is it understandable? That will determine if we're going to invest in it. So we do not take new risk and we like the risk to be mature enough to be understandable and and actually accessible. That's the way we look at it. So the answer to that question would be for you guys, it's never really been part of the deal that you've got about as close to live as you want to be. Absolutely. I like the older, more stable ones, but we've taken newer ones, right? Sometimes an event has happened and it doesn't have to season. It's all about the seasoning that you think that that liability needs. And that's where our team, which is a fantastic team about the claim side and the M&A side, that's what they have to help us assess in the diligence process. We don't seem to have had a hard market in legacy. It doesn't correlate directly with the live market. Has legacy 
become a bit of a commodity, do you think? Or are you still able to really add that value at that real point of delivery, which being that management of intractable and difficult to handle claims? Legacy has evolved from buying dead insurance companies. Sometimes I joke when prior to the credit crisis, if a legacy player was out to lunch with somebody who was in the live insurance business, if any trader saw that meeting, they should immediately go and they should have sold short that live insurance company because you would never want to be seen dead talking to a legacy player. It meant your company was in trouble. But as I mentioned at the outset, that's moved. We're now a capital solutions provider to insurance companies. I think that the live companies, though, are not entering the space because they have a different business model. Grow, 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 grow. Ours is really deal by deal, looking at the economics, looking at the IRR. And our competitors, as I mentioned, also are PE firms. PE firms have very high cost of capital. They're not looking to earn 8%. So I don't know that it's hard or soft. I think we just have a market. I mentioned in program, we see secular growth. The same thing is occurring in the legacy space where insurance companies are looking and saying, oh, I can relieve myself of capital that's holding me back. Business lines that are not making the money I thought they were going to make because interest rates aren't where they are. Business lines that I could never scale. So I should get out of them and I should redeploy resources somewhere else. So I do not think it's a commodity business at all. And I think there's a limited number of players here that really understand it. Most of them are PE firms, only two of us that are publicly traded. Three, if you include Berkshire slash Berkshire Hathaway, but I don't really see them very much anymore. And they are in a different world. So I don't think it's a commodity business at all. I think it's actually a very relationship-driven, sitting in a room and understanding everyone's objectives. And that's the way you get to the best answer for your client. And we want to be client-driven. We have another advantage at R&Q, which is our platform is very broad. We're in Lloyd's, we're in the UK market, we're in the European markets, we're in the Isle of Man, Cayman, Bermuda, the United States, you name it. So when a deal comes in or we approach a company, we can look at where is the best place to take that risk. We also have two rated carriers, which is very unique. Those are our program carriers, but we use them often as a fronting vehicle for legacy. So we have a very unique product offering. And I think that's important in helping us get a lot of business. Again, still on the legacy side of things, part of legacy is sort of working out what the next asbestos is likely to be. On that line, what are the most challenging long-tail losses that you're starting to see emerge through your book? It's a really interesting question because as a crisis emerges, it could hurt us on some of our books, but it also creates a new opportunity on a go-forward basis because existing insurance companies hold that risk. So again, let me take a step back and compare a live insurance company, if you will, or one that's writing unexpired risk to what we do. If I'm an existing insurance company, I'm writing in vintage years, right? I'm writing the 2021 book right now. Next year, I'll write the 2022 book. is R&Q doing in 2021? It's a vintage year for us, 2021. But we're writing things from the 50s, things from the 60s, things from the mid-2000s. So we have a complete mix within any vintage year. And I think that's really important. And it's why I like the small and mid-sized deals for us is we create a lot of diversity in the book. And that's really important in protecting us. So when a claim comes up that we couldn't have imagined, it might hit one book, but it won't hit the whole book. Whereas if you're a live insurance company and you're writing 2021, guess what? It's happening in anything that you wrote in financial institutions that year. Whereas in 2021, we might have a little financial institutions for multiple years. So I think diversification is really, really important. Now go back to what's hitting all the market. Well, one of the things that people couldn't have seen, opioids, molestation, concussion, 
these are things that we're seeing. I'm sure that we'll have exposure to some of them, but it'll be hopefully reasonable across multiple vintage years that we've written over the years. So we'll have to reserve for it. It also creates really big opportunities going forward because somebody's getting hit really hard on a Boy Scout settlement. And we can go in and whether we take out that settlement or we take out another business line to help them get the capital to support the losses that they've made, I don't really know. So we can both get hurt a little bit, but also use it as an opportunity to create new runoff for ourselves. I like your image of the branded blended whiskey. It always tastes the same, but it's a blend of many, many different years put together. So your idea is to keep the R&Q flavor tasting the same and not sort of suddenly going sour because of something you did in just one week. Exactly right. That's a good way to think about it. What do you think about COVID then for an obvious emerging peril that's beginning to mature ever so slightly? What sort of tail do you think this is going to have? It's a hard one. I don't know that I'm really equipped to answer that question. We try to avoid any COVID risk right now because we don't know what might happen. There have been some court settlements. I don't think it's been as bad as people thought, but it might emerge. I don't think we want to take that risk if it's not understandable. But again, if somebody feels that they have a COVID problem, and we don't want to take that risk. We might take some other risk on their books to help them deal with their own COVID problem. So I think we're going to have to see how COVID plays out. I mean, initially it was a catastrophic event. I think we're still early, but I don't think it's been quite as bad as people have said. But these things take a long time to go through the courts. And we're trying to avoid that risk right now. Okay. No COVID, no COVID legacy deals then. Not for the moment, anyway, not until they're fully mature. Yeah, that's right. You'd mentioned earlier about insure tech. It's been going on forever, but we've only really woken up to it the last four or five years in the insurance industry, particularly, and we've started really investing in and collaborating with lots of quite exciting new companies. How has the insurtech world been interacting with legacy? In five years, we're not going to be talking about insurtech, because if you haven't embraced technology, you won't be in business. Maybe it's 10 years. So insurtech is just going to be insurance. So far, what we read about has really been more in the MGA space. It's really been more in the sales space, and it's been delivery and speed that personalized consumers might like. It hasn't been yet as big a deal on the commercial side. There's been some claim systems, and there's people that are able to give you some AI on claims and maybe help you make better decisions. But I haven't really seen it impact legacy, and I haven't really seen it impact our program management business that much yet, other than we'll take on some more mature insure tech companies. I think technology, though, and data, I mentioned right at the beginning, I think it's very important. And I think that if we embrace it, and the good news is we do not have to hire our own data scientists. We don't have to get supercomputers and take a floor in a building to put these supercomputers and each be cooled. It all exists now in the cloud and the AI and the ML technology is all there. We need to embrace it ourselves and say, we're a data company. What can we learn on the MGA side and on the reinsurance side? Well, if we have 68 programs, can we assess the data and be able to help our MGAs know the business that performs the best for them so they can get the best results, grow the fastest, and get the lowest loss ratios for their reinsurers? Can we, on the legacy side, embrace and understand how to settle claims better because of better information? So if we know that there's certain claims you should settle right away because they're going to get worse, and artificial intelligence is telling us that, we're going to enhance our returns. If we can loop that back around to understanding emerging claims, then we might be able to buy legacy transactions more effectively because we're noticing patterns. So the way I want to approach this whole insure tech is how can we make ourselves a data company 
to fatten our margins going forward and grow and effectively make better business decisions and grow and enhance our margins. I turn your question on its head a little bit because we're not really seeing it that much in either of our businesses. We need to embrace it ourselves. On that sphere, a lot of the businesses in the program management space sort of sell themselves to those MGAs as being, hey, you can just plug in to all my tech. Is that the way you market yourself? So you just tend to be more agnostic or would you want to invest in some kind of mega platform that you could say to the MJ, look, just forget your own thing. You concentrate on underwriting and distribution, which is what you're really good at and with all the tech side of it. It's a very interesting question. A lot of the MJs we're dealing with have pretty good tech and they want to develop their tech. I think there is something to be said about, can we improve how you plug in? But I just don't think you need to build a big tech company. You need a platform and then you need an API that connects their data to your data. And so I don't know that it's a huge investment. It's just you want to make sure it's all about data. It's all about the usefulness of the data and it's cleaning the data so that it comes into your system in the way we want to report. So I don't think it's big investments to do that. And some MGAs, you know, maybe over time will have something better that they should plug into. But I don't think that's where we're spending our money. The MGAs generally have invested decently in technology. It's just about getting their data on a consistent basis and a regular basis to be able to get ahead of any issues that they might be having is what we want to look at. You'd like to add some value there, perhaps by aggregating some of your currently 68 and trying to get some insights that you can then pass back to those 68 to sort of make them greater than the sum of their parts, if you know what I mean. That's exactly right. That is different, which is as we get the data, and I put that out there as our five-year vision. First, you have to have a place to get the data, and then you have to analyze the data. And I don't think anybody is insurance is very good at this yet. We want to analyze the data, however we get it, in one form, and then yes, pass observations back to our MGAs to help them improve their business. That will make them even stickier, obviously, because we can help them and it'll make us hopefully help the reinsurers understand the business that they're getting and how profitable it should be for them. That's different though than should we create a mega platform and just say, come on, everyone, just plug in. It isn't that simple. I think everyone reports their data in their own way. And what we really need is the ability to take their data and convert it into how we're collecting data. And that's not that complicated. Interesting what you said about, yeah, I was going to ask you about the other end. You could make yourself even more appealing to a reinsurance company if you're able to then show them insights across that book and sort of explain to them why they should be backing all 68 of your MGAs, for example. I agree. It is interesting that the way the program market works is each program is marketed on a bespoke basis. But why is that? If you have 68 programs and at the half year, we had 60 programs and we were annualizing about 900 million of premium. Now we're at 68. So the number is going to be big. We told the market that by 2023, we should be at GWP of a billion 750 in terms of dollars, $1.75 billion. It's a lot of premium. And so it seems like we should be able to market that to the leading reinsurers or small reinsurers and say, why don't you take a piece of everything we've got? as opposed to marketing on a bespoke basis, because we're actually bringing them something that's pretty interesting and on its own diversified. Yep. And then you get that multi-year nature of it. So you know what, this is a great book of business. It's a billion, going to be growing to 2 billion, hopefully in five years time. And then you solve that problem about instability back to the MGA side. You've got that stability to know that they're not going to suddenly get dumped at the end of a year just because somebody's decided they're not going to write cargo anymore. And again, I go back to... If an MGA can underwrite and make money, not for themselves, but make money for the reinsurers, they're not going to get dumped in a wholesale way. So I didn't really answer your question about multi-year deals. It's not like we're against multi-year deals. The reinsurers have to show up. The reinsurers have to be willing to give the multi-year deals. Yep. 
But if the MGA performs and a reinsured decides for whatever reason they're out of cargo, if the MGA is good, we'll replace them with another reinsurer. And that's the beauty of our model is that it doesn't really matter who's there every year. Obviously, if an MGA performs, most of the capital will be there. But those that decide they're not going to be there, by the way, if they were fronting for them and they were the paper, that's a real problem. But if they just decide not to show up on a 20% line, okay, so we'll find someone else who wants to do that. And again, that's the benefit. Can we market all 68 programs at some point to certain reinsurers? We'll see. It's not the way the industry works now, but I think it should. It's definitely an aspiration at some point you could have this, hey, just write the accredited treaty and that's it. And then you let us manage all the insurance stuff, you know, and we'll give you this fantastically diversified book. And how much do you want to write? It would be very interesting if we can do that. Again, it would be very interesting. And I think over time, as the business matures, when I first looked at this business, which was probably 10 years ago, only company that did it was State National in the United States. I looked at this when I was in Pinebrook. I didn't understand the business. It was so niche. I kind of kept on dismissing it. My mistake, right? Didn't trade very well, but there was only one company doing it. Well, we started at my old firm, Clear Blue. And when we went to investment committee, the investment committee members kept on asking, if it's such a good business and you guys make such a compelling case, why is there only one? And it was a great question. And now we see there's probably eight or 10 because it has proven to be a very resilient business model. And we're not fighting with one another. Actually, if you go back to my concept about why there's secular growth is we're only 10% of the market as a group. 90% is in the hands of existing insurance companies. We're taking share from those guys because our business model is so interesting. I think the proof, again, has been in the pudding with the number of PE firms that have entered. Not easy to enter, by the way. I don't think we're going to see many more competitors. It's not easy to enter. It's not easy to make money. It took us four years to get to where we are today. But I think what we're seeing is a very interesting and long-term sustainable business model. Thanks so much, William. Just the last question. Obviously, Randall and Quilter are in queue. Ken Randall, Alan Quilter. Alan's still around, but and Ken's very much around, but he's retired. Um, so how much influence do those founders still have on the business that carries their names? Let's start with Alan. Alan is around. Alan is the CEO of the group and my partner. And I come from a partnership mentality. That is what a private equity firm is. It's partnerships. And I take that partnership concept very seriously. One individual cannot make all the decisions. You need some level of group think and encouragement right from the bottom of an organization to rise to the top in order to make better decisions. So Alan and I speak probably every day. We make decisions together. And frankly, we have a bigger executive group that we meet with on a regular basis and, and collectively we make decisions. So Alan is very much involved. He's leading our program efforts and the two of us speak on a regular basis. And I value his knowledge and deep knowledge of the business because he's been there and built it up brick by brick. Ken is retired. Ken brought me in with Alan, obviously. We had a 15-month transition period, which was needed because you cannot just walk into any firm and just say, here I am, I'm here to help run a business. It doesn't work that way, especially with a group like Randall and Quilter where Ken and Alan had built brick by brick. They knew where everything was. And I needed that mentorship and guidance from Ken so I appreciate all that Ken did and all that Alan continues to do. We're both great partners. Now Ken's retired and I owe them a lot for taking a chance on me and bringing me in as now executive chairman. So Alan and I work regularly. Ken and I, not as much anymore, obviously, and he should enjoy his retirement. That's great. So has Alan taken you down to Charlton Athletic yet? No, I, I, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, there's been COVID. And so I've made it far less to the UK than I would have liked, but I'll be there in November. 
Great. Well, thanks so much, William. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It sounds that R&Q, there's a huge amount going on and we should be watching the spaces that you're in and watching what you're doing because it's been very impressive. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much and good luck and come back and speak to us soon. I would love to. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And anytime, just give me a call. Do another one. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>